Hello and welcome to this week's Thursday Top 5. I'm Paige. I'm Anna. It's been a very exciting week in New York art. Freeze obviously happened this weekend and the online viewing rooms were open throughout the week, but we will be discussing on our Monday Chatter check-in, so definitely stay tuned for that. Definitely. And also, Christie's and Celebes had major sales. Big Basquiat sales. Big sales. Um, which was very exciting to see. I got vaccinated this week and Paige got her second dose. So it's just like an exciting week all around. It's been a fun one. But I think we're ready for our updates today. Yes. First up, we have an update on the Baltimore Museum. As reported by the Baltimore Sun, quote, Baltimore Museum of Art sold seven paintings for $16.1 million, the money paid for the superstars of tomorrow. So last fall, the BMA tried to raise $65 million for diversity initiatives by selling three high-profile paintings, but you might remember that the backlash from local art lovers and museum professionals from around the world made headlines everywhere. Yes. However, what some might not know is that in 2018, the BMA de-accessioned seven paintings by modern masters, including Andy Warhol and Rosenberg, for $16.1 million. And with the money raised from the sale, 125 paintings and sculptures created by 85 artists were purchased. So now on view through July 18th is an exhibition titled Now is the Time, Recent Acquisitions to the Contemporary Collection, which features works that were purchased with the money made from this 2018 sale. And the exhibit includes 26 new works by women and artists of color that curators are confident will be tomorrow's superstars. And the relatively unknown painters and sculptors whose works will be in the show will in the future command big bucks, according to the article. And the exhibit, kind of to go off of that, is a conscious attempt to reshape the marketplace because when a major museum puts works on view by newer, lesser-known artists, it really gets the attention of collectors and they often take the artists much more seriously and it will cause a boom in these artists' market. And that is what they were trying to do when they initially sold these paintings. So it's interesting to see it come full circle following backlash from them trying to do it again. Yeah, also the BMA was one of the first, like the reason the accession happened this time around was not to include new artists, but because of COVID and like they needed to cover operational costs for a variety of reasons. Like instead of laying off staff, they Mm -hmm. were trying to um, raise money for this. But it was one of the first museums, if not the first, to announce that they would be deaccessioning in order to cover costs. Mm -hmm. And every other museum that tried to do it, like received backlash, like the Brooklyn Museum, the Met. Right, but all the articles about others always reference the BMA sale at the BMA as kind of like the catalyst to it all even though it's a process that the museum had previously gone through exactly and it's interesting that in 2018 not as many people paid attention right so full circle moment full circle but I think we're ready to dive in our first headline of the week comes to us from the art newspaper where it was reported that quote The Coliseum is the last thing I would spend money on. Experts angry over plans for 15 million euro floor at Italy's most famous site. So this decision brings eight years of dispute over the proposal and reservations about the cultural ministry's management of heritage sites to a climax. 
Archaeologists object to covering the amphitheater's unique underground space and point to more vital restoration projects in the country where these funds could be better used. Right. And it was revealed in an online press conference on May 2nd that the design features the latches of lightweight wooden slats, which will cover the hypogeum, which is the network of underground rooms and passageways where gladiators once prepared for um, combat and the slats will rotate to allow air to circulate and slide across runners to reveal the subterranean structures below. So introduced by Emperor Domitian, the hypogeum was originally covered with a floor that rotted away after the Colosseum fell into disuse from the 6th century. Mm-hmm. And then an excavation in the 19th century made a subterranean structure visible and a 650 square meter stage was introduced um, at one end for live performances in 2000. Right. So every time I've ever seen the Colosseum, this like partial floor has been present. So this is a fun fact. I've been to Rome so many times and I've never been inside the Colosseum just because it never really appealed to me. Like I obviously have seen it from the outside and I love like just walking around. It's but impossible I never... not to see from the outside right. when you're going around Rome. Yeah, that is true. <laughs> um, like I, yeah, but I never one inside (laughs) a fun fact about me is that I lived in Rome for a little bit when I Mm -hmm. studied abroad so I've been inside the Colosseum I think like five times that's so which is about four too many but it's okay (laughs) but an interesting fact is that of the 133 Roman amphitheaters in Italy and there are actually 252 elsewhere across the empire the Colosseum has the most extensive subterranean network so many question why this feature which is so special to the Colosseum should be covered up to the public yeah I agree with that and people for the project argue that when the new 3,000 square meter floor is in use visitors will be able to stroll into the arena to take in the majesty of the monument so that is very cool because right now you cannot walk down into the center of the Colosseum. You kind of have to stay up in the stands. Mm -hmm. And this system, which will be completed by 2023, is reversible, which means that it can be dismantled. But then it's also the argument where why are they spending so much money on a floor that they're like, oh, don't worry, it can be dismantled. Yeah, yeah, that is crazy. But also the main argument is around the cost, which is 15 million euro, which is approximately 8.8. Not 18.2 million dollars because many people believe that the funds would be better spent on restoration work or devising new visitor routes and cleaning the Coliseum's exterior. And in 2016, the Coliseum actually went under a big restoration project that was Mm -hmm. sponsored by Todd's, but there doesn't appear to be a sponsor for the project at this time, which might be part of the problem. I think it's also a crazy time to go into this renovation because Italy just went through so much with COVID. Like it was one of the countries that was hardest hit at the beginning of the pandemic. And like, I think obviously it's really important to preserve all of these monuments and all of these sites. But aside from this, I think there are a lot of other projects the government could spend their money on if there is no clear like outside sponsor for this. I think that's a really good point. And then also because of COVID, who's been to Italy in the past year? Yeah, and like I don't think people um, no. are running to go right now. No. So when people do go, it could be two years since they've last been. And then are they going to get to the Colosseum and it's going to be under renovation? Like exactly. that's so disappointing. Yeah. The first time I went 
to Rome, I tried to see the Trevi Fountain and my dad walked us the wrong way after dinner and it was like a big ordeal. And then when we got there, the whole thing was covered up <laughs> because it was under restoration. That's so sad. So there's really nothing worse. Yeah, I agree. We'll see what happens. It's a very interesting yeah. idea. I do like the half floor that there that is there right now because it shows you what could be there, but you're still able to see the network of I underground agree. I tunnels. I mean, I haven't seen it, but I think... In theory, it makes it is, sense. Exactly, it makes sense. It's like in my logical. mind, it makes sense. <laughs> exactly. But we're ready to move on, I think. Yes. Headline number two comes to us from Artnet, where it was announced that quote, Sotheby's the boutique, the auction house has opened a brick and mortar shop for diamond earrings, rare Nikes, and more. So it's called the Emporium, and it's located at Sotheby's flagship on York Avenue in New York. The Enclave is a one-stop shop for rare objects, jewels, and other luxury trinkets for the elevated shopper who wants to buy without the hassle of bidding. Yes, and the brick-and-mortar retail showcase is an extension of the auction house's buy now online marketplace, which offers everything from rare Nike sneakers to diamonds, Hermes handbags, luxury watches, and other object art. So the shop will have a rotating of guest curators to arrange collections for display. The first one is Gucci Westman, who is a makeup artist and has her own line of makeup products called Westman Atelier. I actually love this line and I talked about it when I interviewed for the beauty department at Harper's Bazaar and mm-hmm. I'm convinced that it's what got me the internship. So <laughs> very special. So it has a special place in your heart. But Westman's show is available to shop in store or online from May 10th through June 10th, so there is not that much time. And Sotheby's is making a donation to the Right Livelihood Foundation at Westman's request. The whole thing does have a very like 2020 feel because there has been such an increase in people taking online shopping Mm -hmm. so seriously as a result of not being able to shop in person. Yeah, it makes sense. And I think it's interesting though that it is so like anti-bidding because it goes against everything that an auction house stands for in a way. I agree. That's very true. But I I like the concept as a whole and I think it's cool that they have like a um, like an actual shop. I also think it's cool because I think it will draw people to visit Sotheby's in person. Definitely. And then they always do have unbelievable works on display. Yes. So it's like an extension of that to kind of draw people in, which is I think what they've been trying to do. Yeah, exactly. And also they've been trying they I mean, I guess they always try, but to partner up with like influencer types to get garner more like social media attention for the project like gucci westman has a huge following so some people might be drawn in just by the relationship with her yes our third headline of the week comes to us from the new york times which featured a story titled quote the woman who made van gogh Neglected by art history for decades, Joe Van Gogh Bogner, the painter's sister-in-law, is finally being recognized as the force who opened the world's eyes to his genius. So in 1885, a 22-year-old Dutch woman named Johanna Bonger met Theo Van Gogh, the younger brother of the artist, who was then making a name for himself as an art dealer in Paris. History knows Theo as a steadier of the Van Gogh brothers who selflessly managed Vincent's erratic path through life. Theo asked to marry Johanna after only two meetings, and she declined because she was already already dating someone else. However, Theo's career was going well, and he persisted and convinced her to marry him. Ten months later, they had a son that they named Vincent in honor of Theo's brother. Yeah, so then... Vincent, the artist, moved in with Theo and Joe when his mental illness symptoms worsened, and then Joe happily took him in. And during this time, Vincent was painting a lot, and Joe even wrote in her journal that she that he actually seems stronger than Theo. 
However, a few months later, Vincent passed away, and only a couple months after that, Theo also died from syphilis. Joe was left alone with approximately 400 paintings and several hundred drawings by her brother-in-law. The brothers dying so young, Vincent at 37 and Theo at 33, and without the artist having achieved renown would seem to have ensured that Vincent van Gogh's work would subsist eternally in a world of obscurity. But instead, his name, art, and story merged to form the basis of an industry that stormed the globe, arguably surpassing the fame of any other artist in history. And that was in part thanks to Joanna. Yes. And she was a small in stature and riddled with self-doubt, and she had no background in art or business and faced an art world that was thoroughly male-preserved and like Mm male-centered. And she was previously known to have played a role in building the painter's reputation, but that role was thought to have been modest and this presumption was seemingly based on a combination of just sexism and common sense because not a lot was known about her until recently. And in 2003, the Dutch writer Boss Hen found himself in the Van Gogh Museum's library and stumbled across some letters which prompted him to write a play about Joe. Thanks to these letters, we learn about Joe and the incredibly important role she played in making Van Gogh the well-known artist that he is today. Yes, and like the letters have been studied for like a variety of reasons because then he also stumbled across like letters between the brothers and just like a lot of correspondence that Joe had kept. And like these letters really go on to show like her role and like how important she actually was. And actually a professor at Columbia has studied the letters and a lot of information has has been coming out about her in the like past few years and I think it's so interesting that had she not been alive like Van Gogh would not be famous and like as well known as he is I also the part of this story that struck me the most was the fact that everyone died and left her with over 400 paintings and she was just all alone and like she could have like we said just discarded them and done nothing but instead she pushed for it and now Van Gogh is one of the most recognized artists in the world. I know, that's crazy. And it's also just, like, incredible to think about the fact that, like, they were so worthless at the time because he, like, they had only sold, like, I think two paintings or something like that. Like, I think Van Gogh himself, like, Vincent, only sold one of his own paintings in his life. Mm -hmm. So it's, like, crazy to think about the fact that she, like, made something out of this. Right, and had so much initiative to just go out and (laughs) push for it. And now no one knows about her. Exactly. So sad. But now it's great that they were talking about her. So yeah, it's come full circle. Love to see it. Headline number four comes to us from the art newspaper where it was reported that, quote, James Terrell will unveil another skyscape this year in the Colorado mountains. Artist James Terrell will unveil a new skyscape this summer in the foothills of Pikes Peak in Colorado. The work will be installed on a hillside in Green Mountain Falls, a bucolic town near Colorado Springs. The work, one of more than a hundred of the artist's signature light chambers with ceiling apertures open to the sky, will be officially unveiled on July 10th and a series of public programs are due to be announced in the coming weeks. It is being funded by the Historic Green Mountain Falls Foundation, a nonprofit organization that supports the Green Box Arts Festival, an annual visual and performing arts event launched in 2009. So the piece is around 27 square feet wide and features a retractable roof to ensure that bears and other wildlife do not make dance in it during the winter months. And it is being installed on land that was originally developed to fit a private residence and driveway. Love the wildlife protection. I know, it's kind of crazy. 
Terrell has challenged the Green Mountain Falls community to join the International Dark Sky Association, which is a grassroots network working to reduce light pollution worldwide, something that his art really stands for. Yes. And then later this month, Terrell will inaugurate another sky space at the Massachusetts Museum of Contemporary Art, abbreviated Mass Mocha, in North Adams, Massachusetts, as part of his multi-decade long-term retrospective at the museum. And we actually talked about this on the podcast about two months ago while we were in Colorado. So things are really just coming full circle today. That's so crazy. Yes. The co-founders of the festival visited Terrell's studio in Flagstaff, Arizona, and described the artist as, quote, an approachable, inspiring individual who loves to talk about his work and celestial interests, like the stars and their relationship to us. They also said, quote, he was incredibly generous and ready and willing to collaborate in a location that resonates with his practice. So cute. I love this story. Always nice to hear that artists are nice. (laughs) Always. Whenever I think of James Terrell now, I think of Kendall Jenner and Architectural Digest. And like, I wish that wasn't true. Yeah. But it is. No, I just think of my dad standing in the museum, like hating his life and hating me for making him wait on a two hour line to see (laughs) some light bulbs. But, but I, I thought it was incredible. And I think this is going to be really cool. Maybe yeah, we we'll, have to go see it. We'll return to Colorado <laughs> just for this. I'm sure they can't wait to welcome Ski us back. trip next year. <laughs> Our fifth and final headline is brought to us by Artnet News, where it was reported that, quote, the Cernabas giant, the 180-foot naked figure carved into the English countryside, may have originally been wearing pants. Archaeologists have made remarkable new discoveries about the mysterious Cernabas giant, the UK's largest chalk hill figure. Most notably, they have determined that the 180-foot-tall naked man may have originally been wearing pants. The figure is also likely an Anglo-Saxon creation dating to the two medieval times, which is not what was expected. Many archaeologists and historians thought that he was a prehistoric or post-medieval man, but not medieval. And everyone was wrong, and that makes our results even more exciting. Philip Toms, a physical geographer professor at the University of Gloucestershire, used optically stimulated luminescence testing, which can determine when individual grains of sand last were exposed to sunlight to study examples from the figure and the surrounding hillside. In the deepest layer of Earth, the date range was 700 to 1100 AD. And then another earthwork on the hill, a rectangular formation called the Trendle, is believed to date to the Iron Age, which is why some experts suspect the giant was contemporaneous to that other Mm -hmm. structure. The new results, which Alan told The New Yorker, are most definitive, suggest that the giant could be even older than that, but still present a wide time frame for the work's creation, from 700 to 1560 at the latest. So interestingly, even if the giant does fall on the later end of that spectrum, it's it still precedes the earliest written account of the hill figure, which dates to 1694 by over 100 years. But if the giant was there all along, then why wasn't it mentioned in surviving documents from nearby Cern Abbey, and, which was founded in 1987, or in the Tudor Land Survey, which was conducted in 1617? Like, why did no one write about this? Right, because it's yeah. huge. It's very obvious yes. that it's there. No one's hiding exactly and now based on the new dates papworth's best guess is that the giant fell into disrepair for several centuries with grass overgrowth largely obscuring views of the artwork which is formed from shallow trenches filled with chalk rubble so that might be an answer to our question and the new research suggests that the giant was actually not naked at first and that the 
costume change was a later addition to the piece. It may have just been like a practical joke. A little prank. He's like very naked. And there were a few characters who owned the land in the 17th century who, um, according to historians, were the sort of people who might well have graffitied to change him into this fun figure that he is today. We will be adding some pictures to Instagram. Yeah, definitely Don't check fret. it out. <laughs> But regardless of when it was created and whether or not it was originally naked, the purpose of the massive artwork still remains unknown. Yes. So although this is like solving part of the puzzle, it's still not really. Yeah, there are still so many questions. And honestly, when I first looked at it, it reminded me I didn't even know this existed until yesterday when the article came out. And then also it reminded me of a Keith Haring thing. So when I first saw the image, I was like, why is Keith Haring? Wait, like, what is this? That is so accurate. Right? I knew it reminded me of something and I couldn't place it, but I knew that I had never seen, seen yeah. this before. But, but it's, it's so definitely old. a Keith Haring. Do you think Keith Haring saw this and like got inspiration from it and didn't tell anyone? No. <laughs> but who knows? <laughs> okay, so these are our headlines for the week, but obviously we have our emerging news. Yes, it's a fun one. Emerging news this week comes from The New Yorker which gave an interesting perspective on, quote, Burnt Banksy's inflammatory NFT, not art. So the maybe artist who bought a $95,000 Banksy print and set it aflame has big plans, including an art gallery and an outer space-based NFT. So 50,000 people watched live on Twitter as Burn Banksy struggled to burn a Banksy, but before he torched the artwork, Burn Banksy had a photographer take a picture of it, then minted the photograph as an NFT and uploaded it to an online auction platform. The artist was quoted as saying, I probably should have put lighter fluid on it, but I didn't want to put lighter fluid on a Banksy. I didn't want to disrespect it, which is ironic because he this burnt the work. However, eventually the print did go up in flames and Burnt Banksy's debut NFT sold to an anonymous buyer for about $380,000, of course, in cryptocurrency. And his next project, a decentralized auction house specializing in NFTs, Burnt Banksy has raised about $2 million from cryptocurrency venture capitalists in Hong Kong, mainland China, and Singapore. His auction house will allow anyone to buy or sell NFTs online without being vetted by, quote, snooty auction house personnel. This is terrible. But according to the article, his goal is to remove um, every barrier to entry that has been put in place to be an established artist. So he just wants to make it a free for all. I respect the desire to remove the barrier to entry. Okay, but that's what NFTs were trying to do in the first place. So we're all just going back. It's like, once again, full circle. This is the episode of full circle. Anna's new favorite phrase is full circle. I don't know how I feel about this. Well, it's like the basket that was going to be destroyed. And then people were like, no, you can't do that. I think... I struggle with it also now because Sotheby's and Christie's are doing so much NFT work and they're really pushing for all the cryptocurrency. And now people who are so heavily involved in cryptocurrency are trying to like copy the format, but do their own things separately. This is so messy. I actually hate NFTs. I also have a lot of thoughts, and I'm sure you do too, about buying a Binksy print for $95,000, burning it, and then selling the photograph for more money than than originally. Yeah, this is crazy. It's a crazy world we're living in, honestly. But I want want to hear from Binksy himself. Has he or herself? Has Binksy made a statement? I don't think Binksy has made a statement. Well, we'll just have to wait and see what happens. But Binksy also is shredding. 
Yes, but it's different when you share, share, when you shred your own piece of art than when someone else is destroying the art you made. And then making a profit off the photograph. Yes, this is crazy. Who would buy the NFT? Another cryptocurrency guy. Well, that's what it was, but. Yes, (laughs) because no one else is buying these things. No one wants, it's crazy. No. Anyways. Oh, but people was at Freeze. Unfortunately, I did not get to interact with people at Freeze. You didn't introduce yourself? No. Sadly. Sadly. Um, Yeah, but these are the news for the episode. Definitely stay tuned for our Monday Chatter check-in this week. I think we're really excited about that. Yes. We'll both be vaccinated now, so just things are happening. Things are happening. Yeah, have a great weekend. Thank you. Bye.